invite you to stand as we come for the reading of God's Word uh, this morning uh, from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Again, our scripture reading comes uh, from Hebrews, chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, and become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we hear of the anchor of our hope, of the blessing of the sure word of our Savior, dear God, may we rest and trust in Your promise and in the certainty of the reward that comes to those to whom You have granted that gift. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Last week in our uh, sermon lesson, we uh, heard uh, from Genesis chapter 17. And you remember in chapter, uh, chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, we have Abram becoming Abraham. And you remember that uh, that came about because Abram had been satisfied in Ishmael. You know, he had turned to his concubine Hagar and had had Ishmael. And 13 years later, we hear that God returns back to Abram and reminds him of the promise that God had made. That out of Abram would come many nations. That out of his seed would breathe the multitudes of God's blessings. Of course, Abram, having heard the promise made to Sarai and himself that they would have a son even in their advanced age. And we saw Abram not only doubt the promise of God, but we saw him turn away from the promise to Hagar and to Ishmael. And God comes, reminds him of the promise. And what do we see? We see God not only repeating the covenantal promise, but we see God give Abraham a sign of that covenant. Again, God's Word should be enough, and it is enough. One of the mercies, one of the glories of our God is He understands our weaknesses. He understands that we are fallen creatures and that we need help in these things. And so God gave Abraham a visible word, a visible representation of that covenantal promise, which was in the form of circumcision. And as we have spent these many weeks talking about how to improve our baptism, 
One of the things that we have learned is that God in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, has not only given us the sure word of His truth in the Holy Scriptures and in the witness of the Holy Spirit, but He's also given to us a visible word, a sure word of the covenantal promise, which in the New Covenant is baptism. When we come and we lay hands on a child and we put water upon his or her head, one of the things that we believe is that it's not the water that is, that is the, the, the actual fulfilling of the promise. You know, just as the cutting of the child was not uh, the confirmation, but was again this oath, uh, this secondary, as you were, a sign of God's sure promise. Likewise, when we bring this child, we are saying that this child is a member of God's covenantal family. That God has laid His promise on this child. Of course, for Israel and for the church, that's not where the story ends. You see, Abraham and all those who came after him were also called to not only look at the circumcision and remember God's promise, but they were also called in a very real sense to put their faith and trust in Jehovah. The the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy speaks clearly about the need of the circumcision of the heart. Paul picks up on this, of course, in the book of Romans. But the idea there, again, is that it wasn't the physical sign that was saving God's people, but it was the very act of God in their lives, in their hearts. It's one of the reasons why Jesus is so upset at Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Because this idea of the new birth is not a New Testament idea. It's not something Jesus came up with. I mean, in a sense, it's something Jesus came up with since He is God incarnate. But it's not a new thing to the church. There has always been this idea that men and women, whether Israelite or Gentile, again, are called by the Lord our God to put aside the idols, put aside the false things, put aside all of the material things of this life, and to put their full hope and trust in the living God. Again, that's why Jesus is so harsh with Nicodemus. Because He's a teacher of the law. He is supposed to know these things. And here in the book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul, likewise, as he is speaking to the Jews, is reminding them of the continuation of God's covenantal promise. That the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has not represented a change in God's plans. That there has not been kind of a, a, a plan B happening in the first century. You know, God has not given up in a covenantal sense on the Jews. Of course, Paul goes at length to talk about that in Romans chapter 11. The promise remains for God's people. And there will be a day when we will see God's ethnic people, the Jews, come in faith, in, in mass conversion to the Gospel of Christ. In fact, we're told in the Scriptures that that is going to be one of the signs of the ends of the age. Obviously, that's not something that's happened yet. 
But that's something that we are called to work towards, especially in our outreach to ethnic Jews. It's one of the, 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 the means that God has given in His providence to bring that to pass. Is again this outreach to ethnic Jews that they are not again saved because of their fleshly relation to Abraham or their fleshly relation to Moses. But ethnic Jews are saved in the same way that ethnic Gentiles are saved. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through resting in the blood of the Lamb. Through seeing Jehovah God as this same God who made the promise to Abram and to Abraham. And this is the focus of, in this passage as, as Paul is preaching this sermon. It's one of the things that makes the book of Hebrews uh, so much different from the other letters of Paul. You know, in the letters of Paul, we see Paul begin with, a, with, with an opening, you know, a blessed you know, are you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or to the church at Colossae, something like that. And then there's a closing you know, that mentions particular men and women uh, who are at work, either in these churches or who are in need of prayer. And of course, the book of Hebrews doesn't begin in that way. Like I said, that's one of the reasons why it's so different. Because this is a sermon that Paul preached to Jews. And Paul wants the Jews to understand, again, God's work in the Old Testament. And he wants them to understand that all of these works, all of these promises, all of these designs, the history of Israel itself, had all been part of God's plan for the coming of the promised seed of Eve. In the fruit of Abraham's loins, the reality that had come in Nazareth, that had been born of a virgin, and the promise made to Isaiah, the promise made to Hezekiah, the promise made in Zechariah, all of these things had been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, the Jews were not in agreement that this was the case. We see in, in the Gospels, there's this, this fight going on between uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those Jews which had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised one. And of course, that fight didn't end in the Gospels. We see it in the book of Acts over and over again. In fact, in the chapter that we read in our call to worship, Acts 15, you know, that whole division kind of comes to a head. And we see the people of God gathered together there uh, at uh, the first uh, uh, presbytery meeting uh, there in the Bible in Acts 15. You know, James acting as the moderator. And we see them having this discussion. You know, what are we to do with the Gentiles? What are we to do with the Jews? What are these people now in the new covenant? And in Acts 15 and the consistent witness of the New Testament is that the Jews and the Gentiles have become one in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.28, we have that beautiful passage which tells us that we are now no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's telling us, again, that these, these earthly divisions, these earthly changes, these earthly things have been done away with. And we are now one in the Lord Jesus it's not only that the Jews and the Gentiles have put aside their ethnic realities and have become one race in Jesus, 
But we're also seeing in the New Testament that the covenant promise, the sign of that covenant, you know, is opened not only to boys on the eighth day, but to men and to women. You know, we baptize young boys just as much as we baptize young girls. And again, that's all grounded in this reality that we see Paul getting to here in Hebrews chapter 6. Again, look what he says in verse 13. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You see, again, Abram, as we came to him in Genesis 17, had committed sin against the Lord. And he had doubted the promise of God. And again, God, looking upon Abram, has mercy upon him, shows grace unto him. And then, what do we see? Again, we see the repetition of that covenant promise. And we see the giving of the covenant sign. And again, this idea here is that so Abraham will not only know that the Lord God has watched over him, but that the Lord God is sure in His Word. And so he makes an oath to him. And again, when we think about this oath that has been made, you know, what makes the oath different from the word that had been said. Isn't God's word enough? Well, of course it is enough. But God swears to Abraham by himself. Again, and this oath that is made, again, is is this surety that these things will come uh, to pass. Now, think about an oath in, you know, a kind of contemporary life. You know, we think of an oath, you know, one of the first things we think about is, you know, a bank loan. You know, when you agree with uh, the, uh, the, the, tel- the person at the bank, you, know, you, you shake hands with them. And you make a promise to them. But what else do you have to do? Well, you have to sign a piece of paper confirming your word. Confirming that your promise that you will pay back this loan is not only real, but the bank has something to hold over you when you don't pay back that loan. And of course, when you get a car, for example, you know, when you get that car loan, when you're done paying the loan, what do you receive? Right? You receive the title to that vehicle. The vehicle becomes yours. And again, that's, that's part and parcel of what we see going on here. Again, as God is giving to Abraham, and God has given to us through baptism, this oath, this promise that not only will He fulfill His Word unto us, but that we can be sure of this. Because God has sworn to Himself and by Himself that He will not only bring us out of death, out of darkness, out of uh, the blackness, but will bring us into the light. And that He will do this through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because that's really what the promise in Genesis is all about. Just as God had made that promise to Eve uh, there in Genesis 3 that out of her a seed would come. And what would the seed do? Well, the seed would stomp on the head of the serpent. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that language in Romans 16 and speaks of the way that Jesus has fulfilled that passage. Well, again, what was the problem that Abram faced? Abram didn't have any children. And what was necessary for there to be a seed in the first century that would die for the sins of God's people? Well, Abram had to have a son. And Abram, as we remember, was a very old man. 
And Sarah was a very old woman. And again, the worldly realities were against them. You know, the time had passed. But God came to Abram, came to Sarai, and promised them, told them that they would have a son. And again, that son would be the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 12. That out of Abram would come many nations. Again, we who live on this side of the cross know that Jesus Christ is not only the head of those nations, but the nations which have been brought out of Abraham are of every tribe, every tongue, every color, every place on this earth. When we you know, think about the, uh, the visions in the book of Revelation, one of the things we're told there is that John sees men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered around the throne in heaven. And so for the Jews here in the book of Hebrews to question the work of God, to question whether or not the Gentiles were a part of that covenant promise, was in effect to say that not only is God's word not enough, but God's oath was not enough. In fact, some of the Judaizers would go on to teach that God had broken His covenant with the Jews by allowing the Gentiles to come in. And again, this is, this is something that we see here. And of course, you know, I'm pretty sure almost all of us here, if not all of us, are Gentiles. You know, or are, 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 have come from Gentile lands. Are of the line of Japheth. And again, we think of the promise of God and we think about the reality of Genesis 17. The only reason any of us are here today is because of that promise that God made to Abraham. That out of Him would come many nations. That out of Him would come the fullness of the world into the covenant family of God. And again, this is something that should be a, a, a great praise in our hearts. It should be something that when we read of God's promise unto the Gentiles should fill us with, with, with such a, a, an overwhelming sense of thanksgiving that it should almost cause us to faint. I mean, it's an amazing thing to consider what God has done. So again, think about where the Gentiles are in the midst of Genesis 17. The Gentiles are all around the world. And where is God's promise coming? It's coming to Abram in this small place that's not overly significant. But again, the, the, these Gentiles that were living in the British Isles, these Gentiles living in the northern parts of Europe, uh, these Gentiles living in Asia and in Africa, you know, they have the Gospel today because of the sure promise of the Lord our God, because of the oath that He made with Abraham. And this is again what, what, what Paul is describing to the Jews as he speaks of the oath of the promise of God, of the fulfillment of it in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel confirmed it by and oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge, lay hold of the hope set before us. And these are wonderful words to hear 
Again, the God who cannot lie has made this promise to us. Again, this God who cannot lie has assured us of our place in the heavens. And how has He done that? He's done that by fulfilling the promise He made to Abraham. Again, by making Abraham the father of many nations. By the sending of His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Again, that's, that's what makes John 3.16 such a wonderful verse. Because again, it comes in that talk that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Again, this Nicodemus who should have known better. Who should have known what God's Word said. What God's Word had promised to Abraham. Now Paul here uses kind of a big word. You know, he uses this word immutable. You know, that, that word simply means that God cannot change. In fact, it means that God not only cannot change, but He will not change. And again, that's the anchor that we see Paul referencing here. That's the assurance that each one of us have of our place in the kingdom. That if we have truly placed our faith and trust in the living Christ, then we will not be cast out. And we won't be cast out because our God is immutable. Because our God is never changing. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see in this passage again once more the mercy of God unto us. Because again, none of us have come to see this promise outside of the work of God's Holy Spirit. Again, what has given us eyes to see the beauty of the Gospel? What has given us eyes to see the beauty of Christ is not a decision that we have made, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who gives us the eyes to see that we are dead sinners. That we have no hope outside of ourselves. That we have no ability within ourselves. And again, God has done this. He's done this because of His Word. Because of the reality of what He has said so many thousands of years ago. And it's come to pass in each one of our lives. In each one of our hearts. It's one of the reasons why when we read the Old Testament, we read it as our story. As our family's story. I know many of us are interested in genealogy and where our families come from and how they got to be in Clover, how they got to be in South Carolina. You know, it's, it can be a very fascinating thing, especially when we see the many things that had to happen in order for us to end up where we are today. It's, 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 a, it's a wonderful uh, uh, example. It's a wonderful uh, kind of process to see these things. It's also worthwhile as we do those genealogies to be reminded that if this person hadn't made this decision 500 years ago, we wouldn't exist. And of course, when we think about that, it's, it, it should humble us. It should, it should bring us again to a thanksgiving to the Lord our God who did those works so many years ago to ensure safe passage across the ocean. Especially for, for those of you whose families came here three, four hundred years ago. You think about how many people died in the passage of from Europe to the colonies. How many people died uh, coming from the coast this far inland. You know, how many people died uh, from uh, Native American attacks as they came, uh, as, as we came east or, or west. You think of all of these things that took place in order for you to be here 
on Sunday morning, October 27, 2019. And that should humble us. Again, it should bring us to our knees. It should cause us to, to not only shout thanksgivings unto the Lord, but again, it should change how we respond to the sure promise, the oath of the Lord our God. And again, we see that in, uh, in what Paul says of Abraham. Again, it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge, lay hold of the hope set before us. Again, this is what we see Abraham do in Genesis 18. Right? We see him lay hold of the hope that he has in Christ. And again, God in His mercy gives him again that tangible reality. Right? We see the birth of Isaac. Right? We see Abraham hold his son in his arms and you can rest assured that when Abraham held Isaac in his arms and looked down at him, what do you think he thought of? What do you think came to his mind as he looked in the eyes of his son? What came into his mind, rest assured, was this assurance, was this hope, was this anchor, this reminder that God had fulfilled His promise, that God had given to him a son. And that out of Isaac would come Jacob. And out of Jacob would come Joseph. And out of Joseph would come, many years later, Moses. And out of Moses would come David. And out of David would come all of these all the way down to Mary herself. And of course, out of that beautiful union between the Holy Spirit and Mary would come the Lord Jesus Christ. Would come the hope of humanity. Would come the anchor of our souls would come the hope that lies within the sure word of the Lord our God. And we see the, in the closing verses here, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus, and become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, you remember what, what, what land was Melchizedek king of? Right. He was king of Salem. And Salem translated means peace. Now think about that. And it's not accidental that Melchizedek happened to be king of a place named Salem. Again, it, it teaches us, it shows us again of what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. We have that peace which passes all understanding. That's peace which comforts us in trials. That peace which comforts us in loss. That peace which comforts us even when we have transgressed God's holy law. Because again, each one of us sin. Each one of us break the commandments of God just as Abram did in Ishmael. Again, ultimately, Abram's sin in Ishmael was not trusting in the surety of God's Word, in the surety of His promise. And when we transgress God's law, when we break the commandments, uh, when we, again, act in, and think and do in these ways, again, that's what we're doing in sin. Right? We are saying that we have a better plan than God does. We are saying that we have a better way than God does. That we're wiser than God. That we know what's better for us than what God does. But again, notice once more here. In verse 19, what is Jesus called? He's the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And of course, what did the high priest do when he went into the Holy of Holies, went into the area behind the veil in the tabernacle? 
And He took the blood of the sacrifice and He sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And what was that supposed to represent for Israel? It was meant to represent the fact that their sins had been forgiven. That their sins had been taken away. That their sins had been placed on another. That a substitute had been put in their place. That wrath that was due to them had been given unto this animal. And the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat again was showing Israel that they were cleansed. That they were white as snow. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when we look upon the Lord Jesus, when we look upon the mercy seat, when we look upon these things, we are reminded that our sins have been placed upon our Savior, upon the great high priest, this priest after the order of Melchizedek, that His blood has been shed, has been sprinkled on that same seat. That we might know and that we might have the assurance that we might have this oath from the Lord our God. That we are His. That we will forever be His. And that there is nothing in this world that can take us away from Him. For God is the one who has done this. And God again is one who cannot lie. Again, and for indeed, men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation of them an end of all dispute. So as we close this morning... When we are doubting our salvation, when we're questioning our place in the kingdom, when Satan is attacking us, when Satan is trying to tell us that God doesn't care for us, that God has forsaken us, where can we go? We can go here. To the anchor of our soul. To the sure word of our Savior. To the blessed promise that we have. That God is our God. That we are God's people. And that will forever be the case. Because of who our God is. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious heaven.